0: That's the cinema? Claire's voice was barely audible. Yes. It's deserted. Oh no, Hattie's laugh sounded like fine crystal. I live here. You do? Claire concentrated on pulling into an empty park, but she could barely contain her joy. Claire felt lighter as she walked around to open the door for Hattie, who led the way to the weather-beaten double doors. She unlocked one, and motioned for Claire to follow. Claire had expected the theatre to smell musty, so she was pleasantly surprised when she was greeted with a small hint of freezers, just like Hattie's perfume. Leaving the bright sunlight of Starlight Creek behind, Claire stepped across the threshold and into the foyer blanketed in darkness. She hesitated, fully anticipating Luke Jackson to leap out of the shadows and once more tell her no. Thankfully, the room remained silent. Just as her side adjusted, Hattie turned on the light and Claire squeezed her eyes shut. A moment later, she pried them open, and when she did, a small gasp escaped her lips. Behind the dilapidated facade lay a whole new world of colour and geometric designs, all beautifully maintained. Beneath her feet were black square tiles alternating with pristine white, and to the side was a kiosk and the bar, both made from dark wood and lined with silver stripes and filigree. Tilting her head upwards, Claire took in the magnificent dome, the circular plaster mould painted in gold with an ornate grey, white, and black light fixture made of squares, triangles, and oblongs. I see you are quite taken, said Hattie. That's an understatement, breathed Claire. This is so very different to the outside.
1: Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Ali Sinclair reading from her latest novel, The Cinema at Starlight Creek. The book jumps between rural Australia in 1994 and Hollywood in 1950. In 1994, location scout Claire Montgomery is trying to secure permission to shoot a TV show at a historic Art Deco cinema near a country town in northern Queensland. But the elusive owner of the cinema and the town's fractured community makes things difficult. In 1950, we meet Lena Lee, an ambitious Hollywood actress holding out for bigger roles and better characters, who's challenged by the male-dominated film industry and a scandalous affair. I have the author of The Cinema at Starlight Creek on the phone with me from Geelong to chat about this book. Hey, Ali, how are you?
0: Hi, Angus, I'm good. How are you?
1: Very well, thank you. All the better for your company. Um, <laughs> you uh, describe yourself as an adventurer at heart. Um, have you been on any worldly adventures lately, or do you have any planned in the near future?
0: Um, always planning adventures. <laughs> not as adventurous as when I was in my 20s and 30s. Um, But yes, I'm always, always thinking about uh, places I'd love to see and and go to. So later on this year, um, I'm off to Europe and, um, yes, exploring some really new to me places. Uh, So I've always wanted to go to Russia. So I'm getting a chance to go to Russia and Estonia and not your sort of run of the mill places.
1: No, not at all. Um, when you're a writer, do you ever just get to go on holiday or is it like all research? <laughs> uh,
0: well, I do go on holiday, but I find that often I come across something or someone that really just inspires, you know, a story idea. And, yeah, I don't think I ever really switch off. I yep. try, but, you know, the the brain always kicks into gear.
1: I read that you've been a mountain climbing guide and you've scaled some of the world's highest peaks. Mount Everest has been in the news recently because there's been a really high death toll on the mountain this year. As someone with experience in mountain climbing, does that surprise you? Like, is this quite a dangerous pursuit?
0: It it certainly is a very dangerous pursuit. Um, Yes, actually, I've had a few conversations this week with um, with people uh, about this because it's yeah, it's it's definitely it's in the media now. Um, I do think. That mountaineering has has changed over the last three decades. Now it tends to be, I'm generalising here, but it, it does seem to be that a lot of people are sort of paying to go onto the mountain as opposed to earning their stripes. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Everest has always been expensive, uh, but I it's it seems to be a little bit more accessible these days if if you have if you have the money. And I don't know if the people who, who go have as much experience as, say, people from, say, 30, 40 years ago.
1: What would you say is the most memorable climb you've completed? Uh,
0: my very uh, very first climb in Argentina on a mountain called Aconcagua, and it's the highest mountain in the Americas. It's almost 7,000 metres high, and we just had the most Perfect day to climb the summit, uh, perfect weather. And just as we left the summit, probably about 15 minutes, everything just clouded over. And, you know, we we, missed, we luckily just had that clear window because the rest of the day was just horrendous. So <laughs> it was very lucky because we'd spent a good three or four weeks climbing, like climbing on the mountain and to get to the summit.
1: Yeah, 7,000 metres high. That's like, that's almost as high as Everest, right?
0: Yeah, Everest is eight thousand eight hundred around about, I think. <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 not far off, but eighteen hundred meters can make a massive difference.
1: <laughs> yeah, but did you still need oxygen and things like that?
0: No, we didn't need oxygen. We had spent a lot of time acclimatizing and um they they always sort of say, you know, you climb high and you sleep low. So you'll you'll climb high during the day, take your camping gear and uh your supplies set up a camp higher up and then you go back down to your camp lower down so it allows your body a chance to adjust. Um, So the air was really, really thin, definitely very thin, and you did notice it, but it wasn't quite
1: to the point where we needed oxygen. And you actually spent some time living in South America, right?
0: Mm, I did, I did. Yes, it was my home for, for quite some time. Uh, It was really interesting because my first trip to Argentina, I was just mostly focused on the mountain and I hadn't expected to fall in love with Argentina the way I did. So I actually felt like I was returning home. And I went there a few times. Every time I was coming back to Australia, I would would cry because I felt like I was leaving my other home. Oh, wow. In the end. Yeah, in the end, I was like, you know what? I just need to go there. I need to go there and spend some time there and experience my my second home.
1: (laughs) Second home, yeah. Um, ¿Hablas Mm. español?
0: Sí. ¿Y tú? Uh,
1: Sí, un poco. Ah, muy (laughs) bien. I think that's as far as I can get.
0: (laughs) I'm impressed. Well done. Thank
1: you. (laughs) Um, You wrote an article for Good Reading magazine in 2017 about one of your books, Beneath the Parisian Skies. And in that piece, you included this really wonderful anecdote about you as a child, spinning a globe, closing your eyes, slamming down a finger. And then you'd go to the library and read books about whatever country your finger had landed on. Um, Yes. (laughs) Do you think this life of travel set you up for being a storyteller?
0: Yes, I, I read a quote a while ago and I, I'll probably get it wrong, but it was along the lines of um, being a traveller turned you into a storyteller. And I do, yeah, I always told stories as a kid, made up stories, but I do think my adventures and... Experiencing other cultures and learning about um, history and meeting an array of people has really opened up a whole new world for me, not just personally, but I think also for the kind of stories that I write. Because they all do have a pretty strong influence in terms of uh, combining different cultures and experiences of people from around the world.
1: As well as sort of traveling around the world, um, a lot of your books jump between the past and the present, like your most recent novel, uh, The Cinema at Starlight Creek, and the book you brought out last year, Burning Fields, did that as well, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. As a writer, what attracts you to that setup of jumping between a historical setting and a more modern one?
0: Yeah, it's it's something I find comes really naturally to me. I'm actually, my my next book for next year is a single timeline and I'm actually struggling with that. <laughs> I think I like the idea of having two stories running parallel and, uh, in the, in, for example, in Starlight Creek, you've got two women who are born decades apart. One is in the 1950s and she's working in front of the camera and then there's another one in the 1990s who's working behind the camera with her job as a location assistant. And I just felt it was really interesting to sort of compare their lives and what they're doing and see, you know, if things have changed in four decades, if they hadn't. Um, So I think it's really a good way to be able to explore uh, what life was like then and also now as well.
1: I read that um, Burning Fields is actually set in the same North Queensland town as the 1994 thread of the cinema at Starlight Creek, um, what about that low location or setting was so inspiring that you've gone back there a second time with your writing?
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I just maybe it's because I'm a Victorian and it's about eight degrees at the moment.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I, I, I do like sitting at my desk, imagining myself in in you know sunny and warm climes. But <laughs> uh, I just I find North Queensland is such an, a beautiful visual and it just has a really amazing atmosphere that I just, I just want to capture in my stories because when I, when I write about a particular destination um, in my books, I want my readers to feel like they're there and I look at my setting as almost like a character in itself, that it can actually influence the way um, people behave and um, the different challenges that they might have.
1: Do you feel like you have to spend a lot of time in that location in order to write about it convincingly like that?
0: Oh, most definitely. <laughs> any, any excuse to go to Queensland. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it is, it, it is a destination that really uh, I think is quite close to my heart and I, I, do, I do love any opportunity I can to, to go there and, and experience it. And it, You know, every time I go back there, I, I find something new and interesting to discover.
1: Yeah, what about it in particular? Like, I know um, that the sugarcane fields were particularly important and inspiring for burning fields. Um, mm-hmm. What were some of the locations that you've been to that sort of found their way into the cinema at Starlight Creek?
0: Yeah, well, um, fictional town, but it's, what it's, what I've done is, is probably taken little bits from my favourite places that I've visited uh, around around uh queensland and combine them into into the one the one area although the art deco cinema is probably a combination of a whole lot of art deco cinemas i've I've visited over the years around australia
1: i love that part there's some really really beautiful art deco cinemas in sydney but i've never seen one in a in a more rural setting like the one in the cinema at starlight creek um have you come across cinemas like that in more regional locations
0: I No, actually, I haven't personally. And I think maybe that's why I decided to plant one there. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> because, it is, yeah because part of the storyline is that Claire needs to have this particular cinema because it is in a rural location, um, because it fits in with the TV series that they're making. So I had to make her life a little bit difficult and, and couldn't, you know, have Art Deco cinemas everywhere. <laughs> Otherwise that would be too easy for her.
1: <laughs> she comes up with a few sort of issues trying to advance her career. Um, mm. Can you extrapolate on some of those issues, both sort of personal and career-wise, that she sort of comes up against in this book?
0: Yeah, so Claire, Claire is uh, has grown up in a, in a family um, that is very much, you know, if you put your mind to it, you, you can do it. And so she's grown up with that mindset. But she's chosen a an industry where women, especially uh, location uh, assistants and location managers, um, it's, it's more of a male's uh, job. So, But she's not letting that stop her. But, of course, you know, we have a few characters along the way who, who don't see, <laughs> see it the same way as, as Claire. So when she gets a promotion, um, you know, there's lots of rumours about why she got the promotion and, and why she got it over this other... other uh, gentleman who he, you know, pops up throughout the book and makes her life quite difficult. Um, and personal and also for her job as well, because she does have to travel so much and it's contract work, she never really gets that sense of home. Um, you know, her home base is Melbourne, but she, she's rarely there. She's usually working on set somewhere around Australia. So when she does get to Starlight Creek, she actually has that sense of returning home, if you can uh, see the theme
1: there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> With Claire and me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right um, what you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: Both the, both the women that you um, focus on in this book, um, as you say, work in film, one behind the camera in the case of Claire, but the other one in front of the camera in the case of Lena, Um, Mm -hmm. Hollywood even now struggles to fully reflect the society that it claims to sort of represent and just how problematic Hollywood is behind the scenes has been really explosively revealed with the Me Too movement in recent years. Mm -hmm. Um, And through Lena, you explore what it's like to take on Hollywood in the 1950s as a young woman. What challenges does she face in this story?
0: Yeah, uh, Lena is uh, at the grand old age of 29, (laughs) Is is looked upon as as being too old to be, you know, a starlet. Uh, but she she doesn't let that stop her. Uh, but it, she does definitely come across those challenges for sure. And uh, women in well, what I was concentrating on in the nineteen fifties, from my research, that that female actors then, there were certain expectations about how they behaved off off-camera as well as on-camera. Um, so, you know, a, a woman who was a little bit older, who was single, um, who was quite independent um, and forward-thinking was, you know, quite a challenge for, for directors and producers and also for the media. So they tried to mould Lena into following a certain, I guess, um uh, like a certain mould uh, that was expected of women back in that era. But Lena, Lynn wouldn't have a bar of it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. she
0: challenged them.
1: <laughs> you say that um, as well as obviously being a writer and an adventurer at heart, you're also a researcher. So where did you start with the research for the cinema at Starlight Creek?
0: Yeah, I look, I I feel for the 1950s story, I've been researching all my life on that one. I grew up watching uh, all the Hollywood classics, uh, watching documentaries about the producers and directors and the actors and reading lots of biographies as well. Um, Lena is actually loosely, very loosely, based on Mae West, who was such an inspirational person. Uh, You know, you have a, a certain image on... On the screen of who Mae West is, but when you start delving into the kind of life that she had and how much she challenged Hollywood, she was really business savvy and highly intelligent. So uh, she was a really good inspiration for Felina. Um And then for the 1990s story, I was actually really lucky. I got to go on set on um, a big uh, Australian TV drama and... The director and producers took me under their wing and showed me what they did, how everything worked. I got to speak to the actors and people who worked in all the different departments, like makeup and costume and the script supervision. So I had a really good feel of what went on uh, with a set because when I write stories, I want to be as authentic as I possibly can. So, I write it with the goal that if someone is an expert in a field and they're reading about what I've written, that they can't call me out and say, hey, that doesn't happen.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's so cool that you got to go behind the scenes of that TV show. Um, oh, did that in amazing. some ways, like, ruin the whole glamour of TV?
0: Uh, you know, what? sometimes now when I watch TV, I, I do think about when I was on the set and I can, especially with, with the camera angles and how. How they worked, though. Yeah, sometimes I, I, that does run through my head. And I just try and block it out so I can just enjoy the show. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it has changed my perspective a little bit, and actually has given me a greater appreciation for what everyone does when they work on TV shows because it's really complicated, and it has. There has to be a lot of planning, and it has to be planned, you know, to within seconds. It's it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, and I think what most people would probably be surprised by is just how many people are on set, right, just to shoot what is seemingly a simple scene. There's, like, scores Mm -hmm. of people watching on, right?
0: Oh, yeah, it's crazy. And lots of waiting around. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Lots of waiting around yeah. for people. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really interesting to learn about.
1: Absolutely. Um, in terms of those Hollywood classics that you um, that you watched, uh, do you have any favourites?
0: Some like It Hoss. is probably one of my all time favourites. Uh, I also, oh gosh, so, so many. <laughs> I could be here for a while. Um, but I love Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Calamity Jane. Any Gene Kelly movie, I'm a massive Gene Kelly fan. Oh, gosh, I could go on for hours.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, in the writing of this book and comparing the stories of, of these two women, um, do you feel like things have really changed in a significant way or is it a little bit like, Ugh, things really haven't changed that much?
0: It's interesting because I actually wrote this before the whole Me Too movement. Um, was was out in um, in the media, uh, so I, it was obviously I must have picked up something in the air. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess if I look at when I was writing it prior, yeah, I would say things in those forty years that I, I covered. I think in terms of actresses and what was expected of them so in the 50s you know women were supposed you know often paired up by by their um production companies with you know one of the leading men so that they were quite respectable uh that sort of thing so uh certainly if you look at the actresses in the 1990s they didn't have to to follow, you know, those kind of expectations, so they had a little bit more freedom. But I think things like, you know, equal pay uh, with the men, I think that's that can that is still an issue right now. But I think there's still a few things that we can definitely improve on. But the fact that it's actually being talked about now is is a huge step. So at least it's it's out there and people are talking about it and finding ways. You know, to, to make things better for everybody.
1: We heard you talking about some of the um your favorite movies that you watched growing up there, but I would love to know what some of the books were that you read growing up that sort of set you up for uh life as a novelist later on.
0: Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> I was a major Trixie Belden fan. Um so Trixie Belden uh was a oh, I guess I had like a Amateur sleuth, she was a teenager and she lived out on a farm in New York and with her twin brother and they uh, rode horses and they used to go around solving crime. So it's kind of like Nancy Drew on the back of a horse, which, you know, for 10-year-old me and I was obsessed with horses was just perfect.
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds. About, I haven't heard of those. Most people just say Enid oh, really? Blyton. That's that's way cooler. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm still an Enid fan, but yeah, Trixie Valden's probably the one that really stuck with me. (laughs) Um, And then I also, you know, as I got a little bit older, the Sweet Dreams series, which was sort of like teen romances, I aimed at the tween market. (laughs) And then I really, I kind of moved on to, well, I read read Raiders of the Lost Art before um, I saw the movie, and that really was probably what changed my whole perception of the world and really made me want to go out and explore and learn about different cultures. So that was really significant, that book. And it really put me onto a very, you know, I still, I still do read a lot of nonfiction books. So explorers such as, you know, Edmund Hillary, um, you know, and lots of travel based adventure books. Um, and they, that I've, yeah, still read them all these decades later.
1: Is that um the Indiana Jones one, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, that yeah. That was a that book?
0: Yep. Yeah, it was a book. What? Yeah, I think it, yeah, I know. <laughs> and it was really cool because they had these covers and they were like foil covers and they came out in different colours. Like there was a green cover and a red cover. It was the same book. Um, and I had a red colour and I loved it. I think I'm pretty sure I still have it actually. But yeah, I read it before I saw the movie.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. I love finding out about those big classic movies that you just never know were actually based on a book. Um, so well, cool. yeah.
0: Maybe they brought the book out with the movie. Oh, I don't know. Oh, gotcha. Maybe. I don't know. Importantly, yeah, uh, yeah. there is
1: a Raiders of the Lost Art book out there somewhere. That's the important thing yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, Ali, I would love to know some of the books and authors that you look up to now.
0: Oh gosh, yeah. Again, very long list, <laughs> but I'm a really big fan of uh, Belinda Alexandra's book. Oh yeah, I uh, yeah love her, love her stories. Um, I just recently read The Invitation, which is her last book, and uh, yeah, that was just just fabulous. Um, Maria Duenas is a Spanish author who um, her books are translated, obviously into in, into English. Uh, and she, yeah, she writes really fantastic um, books. Yeah, the first one was, oh, gosh, 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 gosh. I'm just trying to think of the name of it. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. I'm trying to think of it. Oh, it'll come to me, but um, it was a, a spy during World War II. So that was, that was really fun to read. Love all of Pam Jenoff's books and Monica McInerney and also Nina George, who is a German author who's, um, been really popular over in Germany for many, many, many years. And just over the last few years has had her books translated into English and she's done really well, which is fantastic.
1: Yeah, I talked and, to um, Nina George earlier this year. She is so fabulous. You? Yeah, and oh. the cool thing about her actually is that she's not only a really fabulous author, she's also a really, like, fierce activist for authors' rights yes. and stuff over there. Oh, it was so cool she's to listen amazing. to her. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and Nina actually kindly um, gave the cover quote for the German edition of um, Under the Spanish Stars for me. Oh, wow, that's so cool. um, I know, I know. I was a big fan of (laughs) Nina. Yeah, and I I do love her books. And then, of course, we've got all of our fantastic Australian authors as well. We've got so many fantastic authors like T.M. Clark. She's an Aussie author, but she writes books set in Africa. And they are really, really fantastic books. And we've got Rachel Johns.
1: With your career in writing books, you started with Lunar Tango in 2014, Mm -hmm. is that right?
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Yeah. And would you say all of your books sort of fall into this sort of uh, historical romance genre?
0: Um, I'd say my first three books are... Well, yes, all my books are dual timeline. But um, the first three books were, I would say, more like... I like to call them travel fiction. Yeah. So, yeah, so they, they, there is an historical timeline and it also mixes in with a contemporary story, um, but it does delve into the culture and history of particular countries, so like Argentina and Spain and France um with a little bit of Russia thrown in and then Burning Fields is definitely more of an Australian historical but part of it is set in World War II in Italy which was actually great because when I was um researching I discovered so many things that I never knew about Italy in World War II so that was actually quite an eye-opener.
1: Do you think you'll mm. stick with this uh the genre of travel fiction for a while?
0: I think no matter what I write, there's always going to be an element of travel or history or culture because I guess that's just, it's what I love to read in other people's books and it's also, I think, a big part of of me. So I couldn't imagine writing a book uh, without some element of it.
1: Good excuse to keep travelling around the world as well.
0: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: (laughs) <laughs> um, Ali, it's been so wonderful to have you to talk about the cinema at Starlight Creek. You've been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope lots of people go out and delight in your books because they're absolutely fabulous.
0: Oh, thank you, Angus, and thank you for having me on here.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you, Ali. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. The Cinema at Starlight Creek by Ali Sinclair is out now from Harlequin Books. You can get it at all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online store at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.